0: Chapter seven of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs C M Livingston This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Chapter seven Bonnets and Burns and Burdens There is one element of discomfort about this Saturday that I have omitted to notice. Truth to tell, Mrs. John Remington would have been glad not to have had it noticed. She felt ashamed to think the thing troubled her so much. She argued within herself that she must be of a very mean spirit indeed if she could not consider the feeling which prompted the act and ignore the bad taste of its outward appearance. As of old, the occasion for disquietude was connected with something to wear. In brief, the minister's wife had received a present, but the evening before, a remarkable present. It came in a band box with the compliments of Mrs. Jonas Pryor, a name which Mattie had not fancied would ever become a favorite of hers. When the bandbox was open, she struggled with her inward conviction that she ought to feel grateful. Therein lay a bonnet, a very remarkable one. It was made of mixed green and black silk, sheared after the fashion of our grandmothers. Some of the shears had been laid in the old creases, and some had not. Between every third row came an obstinate crease, made in the times when the silk did duty as a dress-sleeve, a crease that refused to be covered with stitches or ironed out, but told its tale of second hand, as plainly as though it had a tongue. Nor was this all. The bonnet had what in that region they called strings, broad, green ribbon of a peculiarly trying shade, ribbon that had once been handsome. Mrs. Jonas Pryor probably paid a good price for it in its best days, but those days were past. It shone with recent pressing and felt weak in spots, where much former tying had worn it thin. A second-hand silk bonnet, with second-hand green strings, for Mrs. Mattie Kirk Remington, Judge Kirk's only daughter, a person for whom, in her young ladyhood, father and mother had considered it hard to find what they held good enough. It was all very strange. The minister's wife did not know whether to laugh or to cry, until she tried on the thing in the bandbox, And then she laughed loud and merrily, being upheld by John, though his was a shout. "'It's a mistake, Matty. They meant it for Aunt Hannah. No, for Aunt Hepsy. I declare it looks like Aunt Hepsy. What in the name of common sense possessed them to choose such a shape for the thing, do you suppose?' "'It's a second-hand shape, John,' said his wife, with a hysterical giggle. "'Everything about it is second-hand. Ribbon, shape, and all.' "'Do you suppose they meant to convey the idea that I am a sort of second-rate woman?' "'Nonsense,' said John. His voice was somewhat sharp. "'Don't, Mattie, Take it from the only thing that makes it endurable. "'It is an expression of love. Of that you may be sure. "'Ill-judged, I admit, since a bonnet is certainly something that you do not need, "'and since there are a hundred things which might have been better chosen to show their good feeling "'that would have been really acceptable.' But all people have not your exquisite taste, of course, and a great many who mean the very best see only appropriateness in what to you is grotesqueness. I confess that I think it is a wretched looking affair, but you can endure it a few times, can you not, dear, for the sake of the love that prompted it? But, John, how do you account for its coming from Mrs. Jonas Pryor? She certainly does not make second hand bonnets for herself, and she has reasonably correct taste. At least, her milliner does, and she does not need to economize. A shade of doubt and anxiety crossed the good man's face, dispelled almost immediately by his sunny smile. I have it, Mattie. This gift is not from her. Depend upon it, some poor woman, who has more heart than money or taste, has sought to show her love for her pastor's wife, and chosen this curious way. She has doubtless confided her plans and hopes to Mrs. Pryor, "'and she has given what help she could "'in order not to hurt the woman's feelings. "'You will hear a story about that bonnet "'which will touch your heart, or I am no prophet.' "'If I thought that,' Mattie had said, "'I could wear the bonnet all summer with a happy heart. "'Poor thing. What a funny shape it is.' "'Then this young couple had laughed again, immoderately, "'albeit Mattie's laughter was very near to tears. "'She had a tender regard for those who were loving her "'for their pastor's sake.' and she went about all evening with a gentle thought for that unknown poor woman. With Saturday morning's burdens came the thought of the green and black bonnet. It was very well to say she could wear it all summer with a happy heart. She felt so in the twilight, with John's appreciative eyes on her face, his own lighting the while over the pleasure he felt in her words. But in prosaic daylight, with the stove-smoking, and all those dishes to wash, and the thought that the next day would be Sunday. It was impossible not to think what a strange figure she would be moving down the aisle with John inside that green and black bonnet. Strangely enough, it presented itself to her overwrought nerves just as they sat down to dinner, and either that, or the pain in her fingers, or the smoke of the morning, or all these things combined, brought the tears so close to the surface that John looked at her in dismay and said abruptly, "'Why, my dear,' What in the world is the matter? Are you sick? Then Mattie blessed those burned fingers in her heart and made haste to parade them to her world. I burned myself, John, just as I was taking up the dinner, and my hands smart so badly I can hardly bear it. Then was John all sympathy and helpfulness. He wanted her to put cold cream on them, and flour, and raw cotton, and a dozen other things that he had heard Aunt Hannah say were good, and he left his gravy to cool on the plate, while he went himself to find a soft bit of linen in which to unwrap them. "'Pity's sake!' said Aunt Hepsy. "'What a fuss you make about a little burn on your finger. You are young, to be sure, and so is John. Why, I've burned my hand before now, so that the flesh peeled right off in chunks, you may say, and made less fuss about it than this. Not that I ever burned myself getting a little simple dinner. I knew too much for that.' It shows dreadful inexperience and ignorance of the right way of doing things to keep burning and cutting oneself, doing plain housework. Martha, how came your mother to bring you up to be such a kind of an ignoramus about all useful things? Didn't she suppose you were ever going to get married? But John had returned and was binding up the fingers with skillful touch and cheerful word to Aunt Hepsy thrown in between. There was no need for Mattie to answer, which was well, for the tears were gone, and the words, had they been spoken, would perhaps have been such as were better left unsaid. It was certainly very hard work to wash the dinner dishes with those burned fingers, especially as by this time the young housekeeper's head ached, and her feet were so tired that she had to order them sternly before they were willing to carry her at all. John had it in his heart to help her the minute he could coax Aunt Hepsy to her room for a nap, but a boy came for him to go in haste to a sick room there was only one gleam of comfort belonging to the hour. Aunt Hepsy did go to her room and her bed, remarking that she was rather tuckered out with her long ride through the mud, and there she remained the greater part of the afternoon, to the great relief of her hostess. A weary afternoon it was. John's call was four miles into the country. He had not asked his wife to go along, though the sweet spring air wooed her, now that the morning's lifelessness had gone out of it. It might have helped her head. But, of course, she could not go, with all that work to be done and company in the house. Of course, John knew that she could not. Yet she wished that he had asked her. It was not like him to rush away, even on such calls as these, without a word for her. This was another of the trials growing out of having a third person always present. Would she be always present? Was it possible that John could intend it? Yet he had looked almost pleased about it. The afternoon hurried away. There was much to be done, and the wearied woman could not seem to get it done. There were constant interruptions. There was finally Mrs. Prynne, her next door neighbour, who just stepped in to see if she could borrow a little milk for tea. Theirs had not come yet, and Mr. Prynne must have his tea early to-night because there was a trustee meeting to talk about some things that needed writing in the church. No, Mrs. Remington could not let her have a drop. She was very sorry, but her milk had soured that day for some unaccountable reason and they had none for themselves. This she explained, with an uneasy wonderment the while as to what needed writing in the church. Were they perhaps going to write the matter of the pastor's salary, so that they might receive it on time, instead of having to go through the humiliation of having goods charged? A word, by the way, which Judge Kirk had brought up his family to regard with something akin to horror. Meantime Mrs. Prynne was expressing her mind. Soured what an idea such a lovely day. Why, you get milk of Joe Perkins, don't you? We bought our milk there for years, and never had a drop sour on our hands. They are very particular, indeed, with their pails and pans. So neat, you know. That is what causes the trouble with milk, carelessness in caring for it. Mrs. Remington, are you sure you remember to scald the tin you keep it in? Young housekeepers cannot be expected to think of everything. Then she chose a fresh subject. Oh, by the way, did you receive a box last evening?' "'Yes,' said Mattie, trying to smile, "'quite a large box. "'Somebody had been very thoughtful, "'a Christmas present after Christmas time. "'I think I shall call it a birthday gift, "'as last Tuesday was my birthday. "'Do you know to whom I am indebted? "'Mrs. Pryor's card was in the box, "'but I cannot suppose the gift was from her.' "'Thus much the daring little woman resolved to venture. "'Mrs. Prynne would not be likely to understand "'why she could not suppose so.' "'From her and me,' said Mrs. Prynne, with a complacent smile. "'She has a right to claim the most of it, though the strings were mine. "'We talked it over, she and I, and decided to see what we could do. "'Mrs. Pryor used to work at a millinery when she was a girl. "'She said she hadn't made a bonnet in some time, "'but she believed she could make one which would become you better. "'Well, I don't know as I ought to say that, "'but it is just the words she said, now that I'm started, "'I suppose I may as well finish, better than the one you were wearing.' That was what she said. "'Is there anything wrong about the bonnet I am wearing?' Mrs. Remington tried to keep her voice very natural and quiet, but she felt herself trembling in every nerve. "'Oh, nothing wrong, exactly,' with a slight laugh. "'But perhaps not just the thing for one who occupies your position. It looks sort of bridey, you know. But, as I told Mrs. Pryor,' said I, She's young, and it isn't to be expected that she should think of things, and her folks never had a great deal to do with ministers, nor churches, I suppose. I ought to thank you, Mrs. Prynne, for taking my part, but since I am a bride, is there anything out of character in my looking like one? That is, if my little grey and white bonnet has that fault. Well, you know, Mrs. Remington, folks will talk, and now that you are a minister's wife, "'and the young people look up to you as a sort of example, "'Mrs. Pryor thought that it would be just as well "'if your bonnet weren't quite so jaunty and citified. "'For some reason Mrs. Prynne seemed to be somewhat embarrassed. "'Perhaps it was the look in the great brown eyes "'which were fixed steadily on her face. "'Certain it was that she rose up suddenly "'and declared the necessity for hastening home at that moment. "'Once there she sat down for a period of fifteen minutes "'and stared into space.' What she said that evening to Mrs. Pryor was, "'I declare for it. I don't know what in the world it was that makes me feel as though she had taken that great green bonnet and kicked it out of the door after me. She didn't do any such thing, in fact. Didn't do anything. And I've told you every word she said, and she spoke low and meek-like. But that's exactly the way I feel about it, and I can't tell why. Perhaps it was all these things combined that made the breakfast late next morning.' Later, by nearly half an hour, the Mrs. Remington planned to have it on Sunday mornings. John did not care. He was, in those respects, the most patient of men. But Aunt Hepsy asked, as she came with John from the parlor, in answer to the little silver bell, Was that the breakfast or dinner bell, Martha? Seems to me I've been up long enough for it to be dinner time. She declined the carefully boiled eggs, on the plea that they were bad for her dyspepsia. She always ate hers poached so Mattie made haste to poach two for her. They were underdone. She could never endure half-raw eggs. Breakfast over, John drew the Bible toward him and began to read. In the solemn music of the words, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, Mattie broke in with a sudden exclamation. John, excuse me a moment, please. I smell something burning. John waited in grave silence, making no reply to Aunt Hepsy's comment. What in the world can she have burning? She isn't getting dinner, is she? Back again in her seat, the rich musical voice went on, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. On and on, through the long, solemn, wonderful chapter, stopping frequently to put in a word of comment, Wonderful sentence, that, isn't it, Mattie, Or, Aunt Hepsy, that is a great thing for people like us to look forward to, isn't it? They were much in the habit of this kind of reading, and Mattie usually looked forward to the hour as one of great help and comfort. But on this particular morning she looked oftenest at the clock on the mantel. How late it was! And the work not done, not even the breakfast things put away, and there were a few little things she must do toward getting ready for dinner before she went to church, if only John had not selected so long a chapter." He, blessed man, was immaculate in fresh linen, beautifully laundered, his fine-fitting black clothes were spotless, and his serene face told that he had his sermon well in hand. Everything about him said, This is Sabbath morning, a day for spiritual rest and refreshment. And there was that dreadful odor of burning syrup. This time Mattie slipped away in silence and set the dish entirely off the stove. But John waited for her and finished the chapter. His prayer, too, never long before in his wife's estimation, seemed to her almost endless. But at last it was over, and she was in her dreadful kitchen again, in no wise calmed by the devotional exercises, in no wise rested from the excitements and trials of yesterday. Had not John said, in the little minute they were alone that morning, it had been too late to talk when at last his sermon was finished the night before. Poor Aunt Hepsy, she has never been a happy woman." we must try to make her later years feel a little sunshine. Did he mean, then, to give her a home with them, and without consulting her in any way? She had opened her mouth to tell him about the green bonnet, and had closed it again. Since he was so full of sympathy for everyone but her, perhaps he would sympathize with his dear congregation in having to bear the scandal of her wicked gray and white bonnet. She would tell him nothing about it. This was the way a perturbed spirit within her put it to herself. As a matter of fact, she knew she did not tell him because of a resolute determination not to mar his Sabbath with bonnets, green or gray, but it seemed to fit her mood to make-believe all to herself that she expected no sympathy from him. On the stove once more was that tiresome dish of fruit which had been found working in its jar. Sabbath morning, though it was, she was trying to save it by heat. The door opened suddenly, and Aunt Hepsy appeared. "'Aren't you done yet? When do you expect to get ready for meeting? The ten o'clock bell has rung. What smells so all over the house? Pity's sake! Do you can fruit on Sunday?' "'Well,' in answer to Mattie's explanation, "'I wonder what Hannah would say to that. I didn't suppose ministers' folk cook things over on Sundays if they had been careless enough to let them work.' "'Why, Aunt Hepsy,' "'It isn't wicked for strawberries to boil on Sunday, is it? "'All I had to do was to pour them into the dish.' "'It might have been the tone more than the words "'that sent Aunt Hepsy out of the room with a flounce "'that made her say to John two minutes afterward, "'That wife of yours has a temper of her own, I see. "'I don't know, but I would rather be imposed upon by my sister "'than to be sassed by a young thing like her.' "'Mattie,' called John half an hour later, in a tone of voice not generally used to her. He was in the lower hall, and Matty was just tying the strings of the green bonnet. "'You really must come this minute, or I shall have to go without you. The bell has been tolling for ten minutes. What can possibly detain you so?' What had not detained her? The morning had been simply untiring in its efforts to delay and exasperate her. Not a pin but had pricked her, not a button but had trifled with her nervous fingers, and now her own mother would hardly have known her in that hideous green bonnet. "'Mattie,' said the voice again, "'I shall have to go.' "'Well, go!' It was the bonnet's fault. The mouth hidden under its shadow had never used such tones before, certainly not to John. "'I'm not ready, and I can't help it. Do go!' The street door opened and closed. Steps were heard on the walk. She could see them from the window." John had given Aunt Hepsy his arm, and he was bending his head to hear her words. He had actually gone without her. Off came the green bonnet, landing by accident on the floor. She let it remain there, sank herself into a little wilted heap not far from it, and buried her face in her hands, and sobbed as though she were the child that Aunt Hepsy had called her. End of chapter 7